0: Dear listeners, Sairam, welcome to a series, Tryst with Divinity, Radio Sai's special presentation where devotees reflect upon their journey to Sai and what it means to them. Today, we have an inspiring and engaging conversation with an internationally acclaimed cardiologist from the Sri Sathya Sai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences, Whitefield, Bangalore. Not only is our guest a proficient doctor of the heart, but also an adept in the science of the soul. So, over now to Dr. Srikant Sola in conversation with Radio Size Karuna Munshi.
1: Dear listeners, Sai Ram from the Radio Size studio in Prashanti Nilayam. Our guest today is Dr. Srikant Sola Consultant Cardiologist at the Sri Satisai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences, Whitefield, Bangalore. Dr. Srikant Sola was born in 1971 in Vijayawada, Andhra Pradesh, India. His family migrated to the USA when he was about five years old, and he grew up in a quiet part of the state of Kentucky. Today, Dr. Sola is an internationally reputed cardiologist. He holds an array of professional credentials, including MD, FACC, and FAHA, and he has acquired these qualifications from the finest of institutions in the U.S. Dr. Sola completed his undergraduate studies at Stanford University, his residency training in internal medicine at Duke University Medical Center, and fellowship in cardiology at Emory University School of Medicine, Atlanta. He then served as a staff cardiologist at the world-famous Cleveland Clinic in the United States. Dr. Sola was named one of America's top cardiologists by the Consumer Research Council of America in 2006 and 7, who's who in science and engineering from 2005 to 2008 and Who's Who in America from 2004 to 2008. Even as Dr. Sola was on top of his game, in 2008, Dr. Sola and his wife Shivani relocated to Bangalore, India to serve their lord, Bhagwan Sri Satisai Baba. Their son is a student at Bhagwan's school in Prashantanilayam. Sairam, Dr. Sola, and a very warm welcome to Radio Sai.
2: Sairam, thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Suna, your life and work stretch beyond the worlds of clinical cardiology. You delve into different worlds of consciousness and speak of the world of Devas and Devis and Ascended Masters with the same ease with which you speak of triglycerides and cholesterol control. And I understand this ability of yours to touch transcendence began very early in your life. How did it all start?
2: The earliest memories that I have was when I was around five or six years old and being able to see things that I thought were normal, things like auras around other people, being able to understand what other people were thinking or feeling without their telling me, being able to see what would happen, although it had not yet happened. And for me, this was a natural something that everyone had, I thought, at the age of five. And when I would explain it to my family members or elders, they would say, oh, that's nice, as if it were just another imagination of a small child. And what happened is I sort of put that away for some time because I understood at a young child that somehow this wasn't natural, it actually wasn't normal, and so it wasn't until I was in college at Stanford University that these abilities or talents started to come back again. So what did you see? I could just understand what was happening. I could look at someone and say... This is probably what they're feeling, this is what they're thinking, and this is the experiences that they have had that have brought them to this particular time and place. Over time, I've understood that everyone has this. It's nothing unusual or nothing difficult or special. It's the ability that all of us have. I remember once Swami said in a discourse, he says that there are certain centers in the brain which, when stimulated, allow us to receive any form of knowledge and he said this is how the Rishis of ancient times receive the vedas so probably the same thing is happening and uh, probably uh, that's what happened in, in my own particular case
1: but you said that it's not unusual because basically all of us have it not all of us experience that ability
2: because our focus is elsewhere our focus is outside of ourselves
1: but consciously you didn't focus somewhere within you at that young age did you
2: Probably what happened is I learned to focus within. I found so much silence and so much peace and joy within that that inner focus developed at quite a early age, naturally, by itself.
1: So when you say you could see things, was it something like, the, you know, Manu Shyamalan's movie, The Sixth Sense, <laughs> the little boy who could see other <laughs> beings? Was it something like that?
2: No, it, it was really no big deal, actually. It was just life as if, uh, how do we look around ourselves? We see other people, we see other activities. It was like that only. Uh, it wasn't anything supernatural or extraordinary in any way, but it just allowed me to understand what others were thinking and feeling quite easily.
1: So by the time you made it to Stanford University, you were more adept at this?
2: Probably what had happened is during childhood and adolescence, I turned it off mm-hmm. because it was just too different from what others around me were experiencing. So I just turned it off maybe consciously or unconsciously. And then one year, that is during my second year in college, I happened to take a summer during the summer holidays working in the Lake Tahoe region of California in the United States. This is a beautiful area of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And I was working at a summer camp teaching art classes. I was a very good artist as a child and in my teenage years. And during my days off, I would go hiking in the mountains that surrounded the place where I was staying. Just beautiful. No people, no nothing except trails, mountains, woods, and forest. And it was there that I had experiences of profound peace, profound stillness. And I knew that there was something. I couldn't put my finger on it yet. I didn't know what it was. But I just knew that something more was there than what a typical 18 or 19-year-old uh young adult would have experienced. And it wasn't until later, maybe an- another year or so after that, that I heard about Swami.
1: And how did that news reach you or that awareness?
2: I was just uh, flying back to India to visit my family members and it just happened that the devotee sitting to my right side was a Sai devotee and he was telling me that he was going to go to visit Puttaparthi to see Satya Sai Baba. He was reading a book on Swami and he showed me the photograph of Swami. I had seen Swami's photos before here and there in other people's houses. When I saw that picture of Swami, I just knew that he was that, what I had been looking for Ever since I was a young child, he was that one. He represented that. It was as if somebody had said, the sky is blue and the grass is green. Well, all of us would say, yes, of course. And so when I saw Swami's photograph that particular time, I said, yes, of course.
1: So your aha moment was airborne.
2: Exactly. Some 30,000 feet above Above the air. Yes.
1: (laughs) So when Swami came into your life, you were just flying into India. Did you come for a darshan then or was it much later?
2: It was on that same visit, we actually had a chance to go and take Swami's darshan. And that began association with Swami that's now been going into its 20 plus, 25 years or so. And uh, what we've learned from Swami eventually is that Swami is us and we are Swami. There is no difference. It used to be in the beginning that we would look up to Swami and say, Swami is my God, Swami is my Guru, Swami is my everything. And that was it. There is nothing except Swami in terms of what we wanted to do. Whether it was studying, that was done for Swami. Whether it was taking care of patients as a medical student or eventually as a resident or then as a, a doctor, that again was done for Swami. Now, the understanding is that Swami and I are the same. There's no difference. See, there are in this earth some 7.2 billion people or so, roughly. So that means that there are 7.2 billion aspects of yourself. It's all the same. And Swami is one such aspect. Swami is everything, but this form of Swami is one of those aspects. So the distinction or the separation between the Sola form and name and Swami's name and form has gone. We don't talk about it much because it's not necessary. You just simply experience it. You just know. Right? You don't have to go and proclaim it or ask about it. You just know that. And so also through sadhana and through practice, one realizes that eventually you and Swami are the same. It's no distinction.
1: So this first flight to when you came to know Swami was in which year?
2: That must have been around 1990 or so. 1990. The year before that, when I was 18 years of age, I joined a group of young adults who were cycling across the United States from San Francisco all the way to Washington, Mm D.C., some 5,000 kilometers. And we would do it for charity. Mm -hmm. We would bicycle about 100 kilometers per day. And we were raising money for different charitable activities across the United States and across different developing countries. And 100 kilometers of bicycle riding every day gives you a lot of time to reflect (laughs) (laughs) and to think (laughs) about what you want to do. And it was on one of those days that I was cycling, coming down a big mountain, that I knew that what I was going to do with this life was to serve. Now, this is before I had come to Swami's fold. I didn't know Swami at this time. You
1: found your purpose. I
2: knew that whatever I was going to do, I was going to serve humanity. Mm
1: -hmm. And that was it. Strong conviction. Yes. And you're living it now.
2: I remember when I was telling my friends and colleagues that I was moving from the Cleveland Clinic, imagine the world-famous Cleveland Clinic, mm. and coming to Puttaparthi, I remember telling the other side devotees, I said, see, if you're not serving, your body is as good as a corpse. And I really believed that at that time. Now what happens is that service comes naturally. It's not something that you have to think about.
1: It's not a contrived activity. You
2: don't have to plan it or anything. Yeah. It just comes automatically. You don't have anything else to do. It's like mm. your heart is always beating. You're always serving. It just happens automatically.
1: But Dr. saw a lot of uh, well-intentioned people I speak to, they say oh, the one thing they really want to do in life is serve, but because of economic necessities and stuff, they have to work and keep their job. So basically, in an ideal situation, they should have enough financial security to quit the job and devote themselves full-time to service. What would you say to such people?
2: I can share my example. Please do. Say so I was at the Cleveland Clinic. I was a young cardiologist. The boss, the head of cardiology at that at that time, still is internationally reputed cardiologist. And all around me were physicians and cardiac surgeons who were at the top of their field. One day, the chairman comes to me and he says, you know, I've been watching you for some time. And you are one of the superstars in our department. And after some time, I think you'll probably become chairman one day. And he was grooming me to become that. Now, one day, I got an email. Just one of those random emails that we get from our Sai these mm-hmm. or Sai Centers and stuff. Or someone had just forwarded to me. And it was about a position for an interventional cardiology fellowship position that is someone who's training to angioplasties and other such procedures at Swami's Hospital in Whitefield. Now, I had already finished my training. I was already practicing, so that wasn't so relevant for me. But at the bottom was a single line. Mm-hmm. And that line said, positions for consultant cardiologists and above are also available. Please send your CV to such and such email address. So I thought, wow, I called up my wife Shivani. She was working. She wasn't available at that time. I went and saw my patients. I was rounding in the hospital and she called me back while I was seeing patients. I excused myself and I said, you know, there's a position for a cardiologist at Swami's hospital in Whitefield. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And there was hardly a second pause, even less than that. And she said, sure, of course, let's go. Mm. And that was it. And there was no, well, what do we do with our house? How do we, you know, manage with mm. our moving? What are our families going to say? Mm. There's nothing like that. The chance to came to serve Swami came. See, it's like this. Suppose that we are all monkeys at the time of Rama, and Rama comes to the group of anadas and he says, "I'm going to go build a bridge. I need some of you guys to come and help me. Will you come?" And uh, many of the monkeys jump up and go. But then you say, uh, "You know what?" I don't know if I'll be able to eat enough bananas if I'm going to go and build a bridge. What should I do? I think I'll stay back here. So when the poor Navatar has come, an opportunity to serve him comes, would you wonder whether you'll be able to make enough? Actually, what we have found is that although we were earning a big, huge salary in the United States, although we had a big, huge house and a fancy cars or cars, rather, and all those things, although we were traveling in the best of accommodations, I was speaking in in international conferences all across the world, the wealth that we have here serving Swami, or rather doing Swami's work, is more than what we ever had before this. Mm -hmm. There's no comparison.
1: Mm -hmm. You don't miss the luxury, the life of affluence that you're left behind? All that is fine.
2: But it's not the luxuries or the affluence that is attractive. It becomes rather a distraction, mm-hmm. I think. Here, when we're sitting and Swami's coming for darshan, we're now able to sit at the beautiful Mahasamadhi and just absorb Swami's love. Such pure love radiates from his Mahasamadhi. Wow. That is divine grace. When I'm able to serve a rikshawala or a cobbler, I remember once I took care of a fellow who mended shoes mm-hmm. and he lived on the street mm-hmm. this fellow had a severe blockage in one of the arteries in mm-hmm. his heart and he needed an angioplasty surgery that surgery would have cost him some one and a half lakh rupees that's about four thousand dollars a little bit less than that mm-hmm. more than this person would have earned in his entire lifetime where would he go where does he go mm-hmm. he can only go to swami's hospital we did that angioplasty for free and he walked out of swami's hospital smiling.
1: And the gratification is just incredible. The
2: isn't gratification, it? the professional and the per- personal satisfaction of doing this type of work far exceeds anything that I would have had otherwise.
1: Very well said.
2: That's true. I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had in the United States, working at the Cleveland Clinic, working with the best of the best, was a tremendous experience, and it really sharpened my my professional skills. Because if you're going to do work, you want to be able to do good work, yes. right? If you're going to do charitable work. You want to be able to help others in a meaningful environment. You don't want to try to do seva with one hand tied behind your back because resources aren't there, facilities are not there, etc. But in Swami's hospital, you have all the resources. You have all the facilities. You have wonderful doctors, superb nurses, amazing managers, which Swami has groomed as his old students who then come on and join his hospital. And it's such a divine, such a delightful environment to work in. Mm -hmm.
1: Wonderful. Dr. Solak, what you're talking about is very profound, and I can see that uh, it's got to do with the way you grew up as a person and how you embraced all life experiences with your mind, heart, and body, much like, I would say, the whirling dervishes of the Mm -hmm. Sufi order who would stay centered even while moving. And you had such clarity about the purpose of your life and what you were seeking, that you were meant to serve. When you were living in a milieu where all experiences are outward bound, Everything is very distracting and everybody is driven by sensory perception. How did you remain centered?
2: See, I think all souls for some time have to fall asleep, especially at this particular time when the Purnavatar is here. Many of us fall asleep for some time and then we waken up. But we need that period in which we are involved in maya so that we can then empathize with those who we see are also involved in maya doesn't mean that we feel that we are superior or better to them or Mm -hmm. that they are inferior or lesser to us.
1: So you're suggesting you've done your time of being involved with Maya and you were on the next bandwagon where you had clarity?
2: And now we are free. Mm -hmm. We have nothing to do. There is no task for us to accomplish. There is no experience for us to receive. We are the self. We realized some time ago, and when I say we, I mean my wife Shivani and I, that we are not the body. We are not the mind. We are not the ego or personality. Thank goodness we are not our memories or any of our experiences that we had before, although many of them were wonderful. The reality is that we are that. We are that God-Self. You are that God-Self. You are Sai. You are Brahma. You are Vishnu. You are Maheshwara. The entire creation is there in the palm of your own hand. Yugas and Mahayugas go by as if in a blink of an eye. There is no birth, there is no death. And when one realizes this, then that becomes the death of death. We keep it to ourselves because it's not necessary to go and proclaim this. Those who are ready for it will come when the time is right. We simply experience that and be that. So, although earlier we talked about serving Swami and doing Swami's work, the reality is that no one is doing anything. Who is serving whom? It's all the same. So, in that sense, then when it comes to say serving Swami's patients, that patient is me. Extension of yourself. It's just another aspect. If your foot is hurting, for example, you rub where it's hurting and you try to make it better. So also, when a fellow human being is suffering because of health or whatever it may be, you understand that that is another aspect of yourself, and naturally, without thinking about it or planning it, anything, you will simply go and extend solace or comfort in whatever way you can to that person.
1: Dr. Suley, speaking of the ultimate state of consciousness, which the Vedas describe at Advaita, where all is one, but till you got there, let me just backtrack. I'm sure it was a journey. Once you came to know Swami, you were in second year undergrad. How did his uh, presence in your life influence your choices in your life, such as your career choice or your marriage or your relocation to India? How Did Swami give you guidance directly, or was it internal?
2: See, once we came to Swami's fold, that is physically in 2008, then we were very fortunate to have close interactions with Swami. But before that, I was always away from Swami. I was in the United States, Mm -hmm. and Swami was here. And although I'd be able to come occasionally for darshans, it's infrequent, as you might imagine. And so I had to learn, I was forced to learn, to connect to the Swami within that is to tune in to go into a great state of silence and then receive the answers for whatever questions I had in that state. And so that is what happened. So whether it was choosing what subject to specialize in or what branch of medicine to specialize in or anything, where to live, where to work, which job to apply for, etc., etc. Everything was done by tuning in to the inner side and then acting on that. It was never necessary to go and proclaim this to anybody. It was really only required simply to listen and to act. For example, if you look at the students, the, those who would be around Swami and serving Him and those in that way, you would see how attentive they were, right? They would never be looking this way or that way. They're always focused fully on what Swami was doing, waiting for the slightest nuance or slightest instruction that He might give True. so that immediately they can go and do it. Yeah. They would never go and proclaim, Swami told me to do this, yeah. They would simply do it quietly and quickly to the best of their ability. So in the same way, by watching their example, I learned to do the same thing, but I had to do it internally. I had to do that inside. And really, the truth is that Swami is there for each and every one of us, waiting to speak to us, waiting to guide us. But because we're so focused outside, we fail to hear His voice.
1: We're talking of hearing His voice. When does one know that I'm listening to Swami's voice and how do you know that you're not listening to your own ego or wishful thinking? Yeah,
2: it's a very good question. How do you know? Because many times what will happen is if we hear something, especially if it's not something we want to do, then we'll say, oh, that's just my mind or my imagination, Mm -hmm. right? What I tell people is, suppose that Swami comes to you during darshan and he starts speaking to you. How would you feel? Would you feel sad? Would you feel scared? Would you feel frightened? No. Most people would feel joyful, they would feel peaceful, they would feel that radiant bliss that one gets from being in Swami's physical presence. So also, when the inner side is speaking to you, you would feel the same way. The inner side will tell you the same things that the outer side will tell you, right? What Swami would tell you on the outside, physically, would not be any different than what he would tell you from Mm -hmm. within. It would be the same thing. So what does Swami say? He says to love everyone, serve everyone, help ever, hurt never. The directions can be very general or they can be very specific based on what you need. But it would be the same as what one would hear and feel from the outer side.
1: Because of the uh, depth of experience, the spiritual exploration that you have been involved with, how has it influenced your practice of medicine as a cardiologist?
2: See, medicine is a great opportunity to share love. Every interaction that we have ultimately is an opportunity to give love, whether it's our spouse or our children or our parents or anyone. It's just opportunities to give love. So for me, I see practicing medicine as a way to share this love, to give love, whether it's taking care of a patient in the outpatient department of the hospital or teaching the other residents and the technologists how to do a better echocardiogram so we can diagnose the patient's disease better. Whatever it may be, it's an opportunity to share This love, that's all. Everything comes back to this love. In fact, once Swami told two elderly devotees, I remember this very well, Mm -hmm. and they shared this story with me. This was back in 1968. Their names were Janama and Kalasu Wintergate, some Mm -hmm. Americans. And Swami took their hands in his hands and he said, and now I want to share with you something you must never forget. Mm -hmm. He said, in the end, in the final analysis, when the body turns to dust and everything is gone. What will matter is not how big of a house you had or what type of car you drove Mm -hmm. or how much money you had in your bank account. The only thing that will matter is how much love you have shared with all of creation. And then Swami paused and said the next part slowly. He said, how much love you have shared with all of creation in every single moment of your life. So when Swami says love all he doesn't mean love your family and your friends and maybe that person at work that you like and not necessarily the person at work that you don't like when swami says love all he means love all of creation not once in a while when it's convenient for you but all the time so this is our how practice how do you get there though practice how do you practice you have to practice right how do you walk from Puttaparthi to Bangalore, if you were going to put one foot fit in front of the other, you would get there. So you have to practice. In fact, these same two souls asked Swami, said, Swami, for how long should we be doing our sadhana? And Swami said, for as long as you are breathing, you must practice your sadhana. As long as you are breathing, you must practice your sadhana. Now what do most of us do? We do our sadhana maybe for a few moments in the morning after we get up, and then perhaps for a second or two during the middle of the day. And then by the time we get home, we're so tired, and then we do a little bit of sadhana. Then we may go to the Sai, Samit, or to bhajans on the weekend. We try to get charged, but before we know it, because of the stress of the acti- activities of the weekday, we again get discharged. And so this is how we go about, mm-hmm. because we're not practicing continuously. as long How, how as you does one practice
1: continuously when you're doing many different things through the course of a day?
2: That's a great question. So suppose I'm doing an operation. Suppose I'm the operating theater assisting the cardiac surgeons. That task becomes my meditation. I will fully step into the task and be so immersed in that task that there's no past and there's no future. There's simply that present moment which is taking care of that patient to the best of my ability. 100% focus. Then once I finish that task, I step out and then immediately step back into the God-Self, immediately step back into the awareness that everything is God. So the task itself becomes a meditation, Mm -hmm. becomes a way of worshipping. Swami Mm -hmm. says, work is worship.
1: Dr. Sula, when you meet a patient, who or what are you looking at?
2: When I meet a patient, I first see each person as Swami. In fact, many times when I'll greet a patient, I'll ask them their name. I'll introduce myself. I'll welcome them to Swami's hospital. But I'll often refer to them as Swami. You know, Swami, please have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Because to me, they are... Swami himself, there it's God talking to God, one and one. It's just reflection, reaction, resound. But what I will look at is not only what is their illness if they have one, but what is the cause of their illness? So back in 2009, Swami called the yeah. physicians and staff at his super specialty hospital in Whitefield, as well as the general hospital, in for a series of interviews. Mm-hmm. And I remember he told us, he said, it's not enough for doctors to simply take care of patients. He said doctors must look into the cause of their illnesses and understand those and treat those as well. So when I take care of a patient, the first thing I do is welcome them, ask them their name. I introduce myself and I tell them, welcome to Swami's hospital in Whitefield. But when I speak to them, I'm speaking as if I'm discussing their condition with Swami. That is, I address them as Swami. Swami, please have a seat. Would you like to do this? Swami, these are your options. This is what you can do regarding your particular condition that love that comes in that interaction Swami's love pouring through this physical body towards them is many times simply transforming i learned early on even when i was in the united states that if i simply spoke to a patient about routine things let's say you need to exercise you should have a better diet you should stop smoking or give up any bad habits etc etc that was okay but more often than not people would go back to their same old ways very quickly but when i spoke to them from that state of Swami's love, it was no longer Dr. Srikanth speaking to them. It was Swami speaking and then allowing, my role was really just to allow Swami's love to come through. Then the transformation took place. Then people would say, Doctor, you're right. I'm going to give all these things up from here on today. That's when the transformation happens. And it's not because of anything we're doing other than possibly allowing that love from Swami to come completely unobstructed and unhindered. Mm -hmm. That's all. So that's where the focus is when we take care of our patients. Mm
1: -hmm. But you speak of finding the root cause of the illness. What role do emotions play in causing this illness?
2: Everything is reflection, reaction, and resound. Everything. That means that if you want love in your life, you have to think loving thoughts, feel loving emotions. Do loving actions. If you want prosperity in your life, you have to do the same. If you want a friend, you have to be a friend. If you want peace, you have to be peace. But the opposite also happens. When we think discordant thoughts, when we think disharmonious thoughts, negative thoughts, where does it go? It goes out into the universe, and it is immediately reflected back to us. It goes into our bodies, it goes into our mind, and it affects everything that we do. Swami once said that the major cause of all illness is a diseased mind. In -hmm. fact, once one of my PhD students, who is a PhD student here in Parthi, was explaining to Swami about his thesis project. I'm his co-guide for this particular project, which is funded by the Department of Biotechnology. And we're looking at why is it that so many Indians develop heart disease at such a young age? much earlier than people abroad, for example, people in Europe or North America. Why is it that this happens? And so my PhD student was explaining this to Swami, and Swami just very casually remarked, "Ah, huh, what is there? The habits that one has, the food that one eat, the environment that we are in, and the thoughts that we think. This is what causes heart disease. He said it so casually as if there is nothing more to it. But all of these things combine through reflection, reaction, and resound. To either give us good health, robust and vibrant health, or to give us disease, aches and pains, imbalances in our body, and so forth. So when I deal with a patient, let's say I had a patient who has a heart attack, and is recovering from that heart attack. I'll not only say, well, you have a blockage in this particular artery, you need to take these medications, you should exercise, you should adjust your diet, etc., etc., I'll also go into the reason why they have it. Have you lost the joy in your life? See, everything is symbolic, right? The blood in our body symbolizes joy. Our knees symbolizes flexibility. Our feet takes us in a particular direction. Every part of our body symbolizes a different aspect of how we relate with creation. So the heart doesn't attack us. It's because we've lost that flow in life. Now, physically, yes, there's a blockage because of too much cholesterol, high blood pressure, sugar is not controlled because of diabetes, etc., etc. But everything is reflection, reaction and we sound. Everything is reflection, reaction, we sound. So whatever we send out will come back to us. And it's very simple just to ask, your anger is not controlled very well, is it? And usually the patient will just nod, but the spouse of the patient will say, yes, doctor, exactly, (laughs) that's exactly correct. (laughs) Tell him to control his anger, and so on and so forth. You can identify the sadness, the depression, the resentment, the sense of loss, the lack of love. And especially the lack of self-love. The lack of self-love. I remember once Swami was asking us, "Are you all happy?" He had told the group when we had gone for the group interview. And we all said yes, Swami, and Swami said, "Very good. Always be happy." On another occasion, he asked Shivani myself. He said, "You know why you two always have so much grace?" Of course, we didn't say anything. He continued. He said, "Because you are always happy. No matter what happens, you are always happy, and that allows divine grace." to flow to you. Mm-hmm. So when we lose this happiness, this joy in our life, what is going to happen? Reflection, reaction, and resolve. It reflects back to us in different ways, sometimes as an illness, sometimes as a particular experience that may be unpleasant. So when we understand this basic teaching of Swami, if you understand it properly, you will never have a negative thought in your life because you know that whatever you send out through your thoughts, emotions, words, and deeds will be reflected back to you in one way or the other. And this is what I share with my patients in a very simplified manner that allows them to understand that, yes, not only do they have to change their diet and they have to exercise more, but they also have to modify their thoughts and emotions.
1: So Dr. Sola, because uh, you take uh, medical science or healthcare to the next dimension by bringing in the spiritual quotient into it, how do your peers in the medical fraternity react to your approach?
2: See, when it comes to medicine, as a physician working in Swami's hospital, we want to bring excellence into whatever we're doing. I have the opportunity to speak at many hospitals, in many conferences across the country, and it always comes back to the same topic excellence in whatever it is that we do. I'm a non invasive cardiologist, which means I focus on cardiac imaging, taking care of patients medically and so forth. And so my training, my teaching my lecturing at various conferences, is about the best that one can be. It's about helping other physicians to bring out the best in themselves so that they can improve what they're doing. You see, at Swami's Hospital, we provide fantastic care. Everything that we do is in line with the international guidelines for how cardiology care should be provided, and we have amazing experience because we see so many types of diseases, all flavors and all conditions, and the physicians, the nurses, the paramedical staff who work there are all very, very dedicated and also very loving and and joyful, which makes it all the better to work there. When we're in this type of environment, though, we are able to take care of so many numbers of patients per year, let's say so many hundreds of thousands of patients. But when we go out and we share our thoughts, our knowledge, our expertise with others across the country or across the world, we are then extending Swami's message, we're extending Swami's work. When they start to provide better care for their patients, then indirectly, we are influencing the quality of care that those patients receive. This is how Swami's work will spread medically. That Mm -hmm. is, we will yes, we will provide excellent care for all of his patients who come to his hospital, but when we share our knowledge and expertise, we will allow that to spread to other hospitals. And I think that just by interacting with us, his physicians, these outside physicians who are not from Swami's hospital, They start to realize that actually you can provide very good care, free of cost, with love and compassion. Mm -hmm. And for many of these physicians, this is the first time this thought has ever come to them.
1: (laughs) Because most people thought it was impossible to achieve what Swami has done through this excellence in medical care, which is free of cost.
2: Even though I'm there every single day, sometimes I even wonder, how is it possible? (laughs) Swami makes it possible.
1: Very true, very true. Uh, Dr. Suna, there have been many studies that have sought to evaluate the relationship between emotions and prayers and human health. What are your thoughts on those?
2: I think that they're very good. It's good that in any new practice that we bring to medicine, that it should be investigated with the absolute most rigorous scientific methodology. I commonly give talks on how to conduct research studies and how to design a research trial using the current state-of-art methodology in research. And I do this for our residents, I do this for other physicians and other specialties and so forth. And so whether it comes to cardiology, cardiac surgery, or holistic health, the same rigor is required for any of this type of work. However, the difficulty or the issue that we have with holistic health care is that it's difficult to do a study in which just one intervention is required, because when we think of holistic health, we're talking about everything. We're talking about diet, lifestyle, and especially emotions deep feelings, and thoughts. And those are very difficult to quantify. How do you quantify love, for example? We don't have a scale or a machine in which we can measure that. We can't study that. Yes, there probably is a huge impact of love, of peace, of joy on our health. But right now, at least, we don't have a way of measuring it. Hopefully, we may. But is it necessary to put numbers and labels on all these things? No. But is it required to understand that our thoughts and feelings and emotions impact our health? Absolutely.
1: Mm -hmm. Dr. Sula, when you first migrated back to India to relocate in Whitefield in the year 2008, I understand you had multiple occasions when you were able to interact with Bhagwan in his physical form. Would you like to recall some of your fondest memories for us?
2: Sure. Those were golden days and golden memories. Earlier I shared how the whole move back to India to Swami's Hospital in Whitefield started with just a simple email, That's right. just a one line on an email and how that changed everything. Obviously, all divine play. Now, before this actually happened, some of the hospital staff from Swami's Hospital in Whitefield had gone to meet Swami and said, Swami, we need another cardiologist. We would like to hire another cardiologist because the workload is increasing. And Swami just looked up as if he was thinking, it's all play acting because Swami knows everything. But he said, another cardiology doctor from America is already coming. <laughs> and so they thought oh okay they didn't understand what they meant but they knew that if that Swami says then okay so it is a few weeks later they got my CV in the in the email then they took my CV to Swami and they showed the CV to Swami they showed the photograph Swami went through all the pages of the CV looked through everything There's Swami this doctor is very good he comes from the Cleveland Clinic it's a world famous hospital he's won all these awards etc 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 and Swami says huh I know who do you think called him to come here? Mm-hmm. And so in those early days, it was great fun being here, being in Darshan, watching Swami, interacting with him. And the joke from the other staff around me was that, oh, you've come, well, Swami will definitely interact with you. And that was often the case. And it was just Swami's way of showing his love, of recharging us, of giving us the the attention, or letting us know, rather, that he was there for us. Interestingly. At the same time, when we're back in Whitefield, when we're silent, whenever I'm alone and there's nothing to be done, I just go back into the state of the Self, the God Self, which is everything. You can call it the Paramatma, the Parabrahman, the Jeevatma, it doesn't matter. It's just that, which is everything. And for us, that's all that is. But then when we come to to Puttaparthi, we would see Swami's form, <laughs> and my goodness, the Maya that is around Swami's form is just impenetrable. It is. We cannot get past it. And we would think Swami, back in Bangalore it's so easy to stay in the self. But then we come here and then we get lost in separation. Not in a negative way. No, or because a bad the way. is so
1: beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yes. And it's so fun.
2: Swami just looks this way and smile and then you think, aha and everything that you're feeling just washes away and that bliss. And, and that you're on shore. such a high exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It is One of the things that we would like to do is uh, I would pray. say, Swami, let me enter your consciousness. And Swami would come out, and I would just go into that nothingness, indescribable state of being, just beingness. There's no form, there's no name, there's no darshan, there's no anything. And being in the presence of the avatar, being whether it's a physical presence or the inner presence, allows you to experience that. And all you have to do is just ask, and he'll give.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that simple, huh?
2: That's simple. All you have to do is ask. It helps if you practice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it does. But as Swami says, as long as you're breathing, you have to practice your sadhana. Mm
1: -hmm. And stay focused on the goal. Wonderful. In the broader area of your work, Dr. Sola, outside of strict clinical cardiologists, how do you assess the health of the human race at the present moment?
2: I remember once, back in 2007, Swami was in Kodaikanal. This was shared with me by some of his students. And Swami just casually remarked, "Satyuga begins in 2012. He said it as casually as if he would say it rains during monsoon season. And so we know that we're at the end of one age and at the beginning of the next. This is why we have the Triple Incarnation of the Shirti Sai, Sattya Sai, Prema Sai avatars. And so when we go from one level of consciousness to another, naturally there will be changes. And it is this change in consciousness that we're all seeing now, which Swami has very quietly been doing all along. And that's what we're seeing. The problems that we see in society are simply a reflection of whatever is already there within us. Remember earlier I said that everything is reflection, reaction, and resound. So if you take, for example, the pollution that we have in our environment now, this is simply a reflection of the inner pollution that we are experiencing within ourselves. If you look at our political leaders, for example, the consciousness of those leaders is simply a reflection of the consciousness of the people whom they are governing.
1: So if your people think there's a lot of rampant corruption in public life in India, does that reflect the collective corruption of our consciousness?
2: Everything is reflection, reaction, But
1: there are many honest people in this country, a so land of sages and seers and many hardworking honest people as well. Yes, but
2: in order to experience unity, one needs to experience duality as well. In order to appreciate unity, rather, one needs to have that experience. For example, here we are sitting in a very comfortable room. It's such a beautiful environment. But if it's, it happens to be very, very hot outside, we won't really appreciate it, right? So in order for us to have a better appreciation of non-duality, we need to have that experience of duality as well. And it doesn't get any better than right now, in the peak of the Kaliba, at the very end of the Kaliba, where everything is as bad as it's ever going to get. And that's why so many of us have chosen to take birth at this time. We want to be here when the Purnavatar is here, and we want to experience the maximum duality that we can, so that we can appreciate the unity that is. And it will come. It will come in the right time, in the right place.
1: We all hope so as well. In light of Bhagwan's Mahasamadhi 11 months ago or so, how do you relate to him now?
2: For me, I feel that I'm probably closer to the inner Swami than ever before. It's never been so easy to tune into Swami's will for me. Again, this is not a public thing. I never go out and say, this is what Swami said for me and you need to follow it. Nothing like that. This is simply the inner guidance that is required for whatever activities are present before me. So it's easier now to connect with Swami, I feel, than ever before. I think many devotees would agree with that as well. See, when you are with Swami, his form is so beautiful. One smile, one glance, and you're simply lost in that love just touching his feet, you feel thrilled and thrilled and thrilled and thrilled. To the core. <laughs> yes. Remember in those days how wonderful it was, so Swami would simply just come and sit right in front of me, you know, hardly a foot away, and I would take Padnamaskar, Namaskar, Padnamaskar, Namaskar, pad Namaskar, then I would say, no, no, I shouldn't be so greedy. And then I would just sit back and, and just enjoy being in the Divine Presence. It's so blissful, so wonderful, so beautiful. But having said that, we have to learn to recognize Swami within us as us. There's no separation of anything from anything. The moment we see two, maya is in operation. And what happens when we have such a beautiful form like Swami's is that we begin to get attached to it, right? We don't want to be anywhere else. We don't want to see anything else. We only think Swami, Swami, Swami. We only feel Swami, Swami, Swami. We want to be with that form as much as possible, even if we're with him one time or a thousand times. Such a blissful state that we always want to be with him. Yet what happens is because of that attachment, we impede our own spiritual progress. And so what happens, although the guru, the master is required for our spiritual growth, in the end, that attachment to the guru or the master becomes an obstacle to our growth. And so the guru has to leave. It always has to be that way. If it weren't, then Rama, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, everybody else will still be here and we would still be learning from them. And so Swami also has to leave so that this part of our growth can be completed and the next stage can begin. And now that Swami is physically no longer here, now we're learning to see Swami as being everywhere, not just in Prasanthi but in everything as everything. Once I told the boys, I said, See, for so long you are used to seeing Swami coming in his orange robe. Once in a while he might come out in a white robe or perhaps even a crimson robe, or on Krishna Janmashtami, a yellow robe, and how beautiful he looked. But now, Swami has donned his universal robe. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, the same eagerness, the same enthusiasm that you used to wait for Swami's darshan, you should now be waiting and looking for Swami within yourself. And when you develop that same determination, you will find him there, and you realize that that sigh is what you really are. You're not the body you're not your name, you're not your form, you're not your ego, you're not your personality. You are that God-Self, which is everything, and there is nothing else.
1: Very inspiring to hear those words. Dr. Sola, really appreciate your coming down to Puttaparthi for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. sai ram, sai ram.
0: Sai Ram, we hope you enjoyed today's segment of Trist with Divinity where you heard a conversation with Dr. Srikant Sola, an internationally acclaimed cardiologist from the Sri Sathya Sai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences, Whitefield, Bangalore. We look forward to your feedback to this program. You can reach us at listener at Radiosci.org. Thank you for tuning in to Radio Sai Global Harmony. Coming to you from Prasanthi the abode of ultimate peace, Sairam.